You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Former President Donald Trump bid farewell to Washington today, the first president in modern history to boycott his successor's inauguration. What's the road ahead for a man who has never adhered to political norms? Joining me is Tina Davis, the executive editor of Bloomberg Legal News. Tina, what's been happening with the Trump empire while he's been president? If you look at kind of all of the holdings of Trump organization, the president came in to office worth about $3 billion, And even though we've had a brilliant economy, excluding the pandemic for most of the four years of his term, and there's also a massive tax cut program that was implemented under his administration, he's actually leaving about $500 million poorer than he came in. And that's most of it because of the downturn in the real estate market and obviously the downturn in the tourism business that's come as a result of the pandemic. This is not a great time to be in real estate, either commercial or residential, certainly in New York City. And it's not a great time to be offering things like golf trips for a lot of the populace that's still locked down. And his company carries a billion dollars in debt. Is he personally liable for that? And can he cover it? He's not personally liable for all of that debt. He's personally liable for about $300 million of that debt. And that's being held by Deutsche Bank, which is looking to extricate itself from its relationship with the president. So he's going to have to find another lender to take on that debt, or at least Deutsche Bank is going to have to find someone to offload that debt to. But the other thing to think about when you're looking at this debt load, I mean, it's not a huge debt load in comparison to the values of the properties. And the other thing to think about is, you know, you don't have banks right now that are desperate to be in the real estate business. Nobody's desperate to be in the real estate business. So that might also help, you know, again, if if it comes to a worsening financial situation, you know, you as a bank don't necessarily want to own a hotel right now or want to own a huge commercial property at the moment. That also means it's going to be difficult to sell assets to raise money. Correct. And look, I think, as I said, this is not, there's no indication at present that there are kind of severe financial constraints facing Trump as he returns to Trump.org. But it is not a great time to be in these businesses. He's in prior years made a lot of money from licensing his name. It's not clear exactly what that will look like going forward since we have seen a lot of companies distance themselves in the aftermath of the Capitol siege. So he's got a base of of assets, whether or not he can build on that is is an open question and, and how he'll build on that is an open question. He's been counted out many times before and He's managed to come back from those. Tell us a little bit about his comebacks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think of Donald Trump, it's always everything is done in a rather big way. So you've had the spectacular bankruptcies after he overextended himself. You know, there was a Trump airline at one point. There are a lot of businesses that he got into and was not entirely successful with. And in fact, if you sort of think about his most recent rise, you know, when he got the job on The Apprentice, he was not necessarily in the best financial position of his career. That job helped launch him into a, another kind of stratosphere, both in terms of earnings and in terms of having his face before the American public, which I think was incredibly helpful as he began this presidential run. And, and again, if you think about comebacks, and nobody thought he would win in 2016, and he managed to overcome all the skeptics and become the first businessman president who never held an elected office before. So you can never really, again, sort of count him out, I think, is what we've learned. Has a lot changed since the Capitol riots? For example, before the riots, there was talk of a Trump network. 
Yeah. Is that more difficult now or is it out of the question? I think it's not entirely out of the question. And I guess the reason I'll say that is because we've seen so many times that businesses and corporations have distanced themselves and then come back to him. I mean, thinking in the immediate aftermath of what happened in Charlottesville, there were a lot of people who quit from the various sort of task force that were part of advising the White House. And then those people eventually came back around. So if you're talking about, I think, for media and social media specifically, that's one of the places where we saw perhaps the greatest reaction when the president lost the megaphone that he had in Twitter. That's a real difference. You know, that's a very direct way that he had of reaching out to all of his followers. He had 88 million followers on Twitter. Losing that that microphone, that megaphone, if you will, is a real sort of game changer in terms of you don't really hear as much from him. And it will be very interesting going forward to see what he uses to replace that. And perhaps that is uh, a media channel he's talked before about wanting to create some sort of network that would compete with Fox, which he has denigrated as, you know, not being conservative enough from his view. But perhaps it's also a social media channel. You know, we've seen Parler shut down and then ultimately be able to get back online. Maybe there's another way for him to connect with folks. And he has a tremendous amount of information that he's gotten just from his app. So, you know, if you are a follower of Trump and you've downloaded his app, he has your phone number, your email. He has a lot of great information that if you're looking to monetize the base, you have the potential ability to do that. If you sort of think about how do you create potentially a new social media base? How do you reach your followers if you're not able to use the normal uh, methods of Facebook or Twitter? And has there actually been talk about a revival of The Apprentice? There has, although he said in the past he wouldn't do it. But as I said before, I don't think that you ever completely discount any possibility when it comes to this president. He's done so many things that nobody expected him to do over the past four years and obviously before that as well. He will be looking for some sort of way to connect with the people who believe in him. And whether that's through traditional media, whether that's through building another network, whether it's through taking a stake maybe in One American News or Newsmax, which are two media outlets that have really been supporting him, those are potential paths for him in the years ahead. Simon & Schuster, I think it was, canceled their book deal with Senator Josh Hawley after the riot. But is a huge book deal for Trump still a possibility? Oh, I would say so. And I think, you know, it's a little bit different canceling a book deal for a senator. And this is, again, this is a book deal that was about, he was writing about technology companies. I think there will be appetite kind of regardless for a memoir from the president, which is one of the traditional things that presidents do aside from playing golf and setting up their presidential libraries. You know, the tradition is that you write a memoir and you usually make several million dollars off of that book deal. I would be really surprised if no one wanted to bid for that memoir because there is appetite for it. Trump has written several books in the past, including most famously The Art of the Deal. All of those, of course, written with ghostwriters, but he's shown an interest in book publishing in the past. And I, I wouldn't expect publishing to turn its back on him because this would be an interesting book, no matter who you support or don't support. It'd be an interesting book to read his sort of take on the past four years. And talk a little bit about legal exposure now. So tell us what some of the possible federal cases against him might be. So the federal cases get more and more interesting. Up until two weeks ago, I would have said there was probably not a great deal of of a chance that the Justice Department would necessarily file charges against him. But in the aftermath of what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, 
He's also potentially facing charges of incitement if the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia decides to pursue that. He is facing potential obstruction of justice charges if the Biden administration, uh, if their Justice Department decides to move forward with that. So those are some of the federal charges, cases that are outside of the federal jurisdiction. I'm thinking specifically about a couple of cases in New York. He has the New York Attorney General looking at his taxes and what he's done there. And you have the Manhattan District Attorney who famously went all the way to Supreme Court to get access to his financial records. He looks into potential fraud by the Trump Organization and by Donald Trump himself. As far as the federal cases, you know, before the Capitol riot, it was reported that Joe Biden basically wanted to move on. He didn't want the beginning of his presidency tarnished by federal charges against Trump. But has that whole dynamic changed since the riot? Well, I think that remains to be seen. I mean, the constant refrain we've gotten from the Biden administration is that they want to try to make what they see as a deliberate break with the policies of the prior administration and try not to be seen as directing the Justice Department who to prosecute and who not to prosecute. So their approach is that, you know, they plan on being very hands-off with the Justice Department and allowing the Justice Department to do its work. But again, I I feel like when you're talking about, again, there not being a huge amount of kind of lock him up chance going on amongst the Biden administration officials, that may have changed. And what's interesting is we heard from the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, who is an acting U.S. attorney, but is a a Trump appointee, that he would not rule out the idea of possibly charging the president, as they have hundreds of cases that are now under their jurisdiction, and they've arrested more than 100 people in association with what happened on that day. The fact that he wouldn't rule it out, I think, is a very interesting and very telling statement. Is there a possibility of charges from the phone calls that he made to Georgia officials to try to change the election results in that state? Yeah, so we've heard from, uh, we've heard at least the idea that the, that a prosecutor in Fulton County is looking into those. Um, I feel like you, you know, you obviously need political support for those things, and I'm not sure necessarily that there would be support, even though the president has attacked numerous officials in Georgia, including the governor and the secretary of state there. I'm not sure that that they would have kind of the political uh, will to necessarily send their prosecutors after him. But again, in majority kind of Democratic areas and Fulton County being one of those, you might see someone try to bring a charge, a state charge, um, looking at a potential election interference, given what was said on that phone call. You mentioned the Manhattan prosecutor's lawsuit and the grand jury investigation there. There, It went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yes, the grand jury can get the tax records, but it has to go back and be reviewed. Where is that now? I haven't heard that much about that lately. What point is it at? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good question, because one of the things we've been thinking about is, you know, whether or not on January 20th, if somebody is going to go ahead and, and file charges or, you know, unseal an indictment against the president. And just a reminder, the president is not immune from any kind of charges while he's in office. Certainly, he's faced several civil cases. Um, there is just sort of the idea or the mindset that 
you can't criminally charge a, a sitting president that has never been tested, and I don't think it will be in this administration. But yeah, if you think about the what's gone back and forth with the Cyrus Vance case, that's actually back up for the Supreme Court for yet another decision. And, you know, what we're hearing is that the folks in that office are waiting or having to wait for the Supreme Court's decision before they decide, you know, exactly what they're going to do with all of the information in front of them. Because they, they're still waiting for a few key legal documents from his financial records. Does he have, like... Different law firms handling different cases? Is someone person in charge of all this litigation defending him? That's a good question. I don't know that there's one single person in charge. And in fact, his uh, representation has been kind of an open question as uh, law firms have backed away uh, under criticism for work that that they've done uh, on behalf of Trump or on behalf of Republicans in the aftermath of the election and sort of challenging the election results. We've seen several white shoe law firms that have decided that they are not going to do business. And in one case, a lawyer who was on the phone with him during that Georgia phone call has parted ways with her law firm um, because of what happened and because she was taking part in that. So we also don't know exactly who will represent him in his impeachment trial, assuming that goes forward in the Senate. Um, and probably that won't happen until after he's out of office. Um, you know, if you sort of think about this is a man who's been who's had an incredibly uh, litigious history. He's kept a, a lot of lawyers uh, busy over his time. Um, you know, you sort of think about folks like Mark Kasowitz, who have been one of his um, strongest you know, allies. You know, does he go back to using the people he was using before he was in the White House? Does he have a new round? of lawyers that he turns to. Obviously, we know he's close with folks like Alan Dershowitz and, um, you know, other people that are legal pundits, maybe more than than practicing a lot of law at the moment. But, you know, where does he turn for his legal representation? I think that's a very open question. Also, he has failed to pay a lot of his lawyers in the past. So that may be another consideration in mind when you decide whether or not to take him on as a client. Well, when you think about that, you think of, specifically uh, Rudy Giuliani, who has been unbelievably loyal to the president over the past four years. Um, And it was reported that he was seeking $20,000 a day to represent him in these election cases. Um, And then it was also reported that the president was not looking to pay that amount. (laughs) So what I will say is we don't know exactly what's going on there. We did see in the last round of uh, campaign documents that had to be officially filed with the federal election campaign. Um, that he was still making payments to the, the same lawyers that you'd expect to see. We did not see any payments to Giuliani. Those were good as of the end of, um, I believe, the end of November. So we don't know if those bills just haven't come due yet or if we will see something that um, in the next round of campaign documents that are due to be published at the end of this month. We talked about the retail brand and, you know, whether – that's going to take a big hit or not. What about his MAGA merchandise and all those things? Yeah, so as part of a lot of companies kind of walking away from Trump and Trump-related uh, entities in the aftermath of January 6th, we did see the Canadian retail giant Shopify basically say that they would no longer support uh, the sites that were selling Donald Trump merchandise and the official merchandise specifically. So we did see 
that part of the website has become not very functional after Shopify withdrew its support. Um, in fact, it was basically the, the site was asking people to email their orders in, which if you've ever done online shopping, just feels like you're working in the, you know, the medieval times to try to do that. Um, over the weekend, that site did get back up and running. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly who the alternative supplier is that they're using to sort of keep the infrastructure working so if they can continue to process payments from that. Um, but, I mean, you can still buy a MAGA hat if you want to on his website um, and, and all sorts of other merchandise. So, I mean, this is a president who's never shied away from putting his name on um, a lot of items. I'm thinking of Trump steaks and Trump vodka in particular. Um, I would expect that to still be a stream of revenue for him going forward. Thanks, Tina. That's Tina Davis, executive editor of Bloomberg Legal News. It was a pardon blitz in Trump's last 12 hours in office. The former president pardoned 73 people and commuted the sentences of 70 more. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner of Carter in English. Bob, the pardon power is one of the most unrestrained powers the president has. The pardon power comes from the first clause of Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, which provides the president shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. So this is an extremely broad power. It's vested by the Constitution and the president, and there's very little that Congress can do to constrain it short of impeaching the president if they believe it's an abuse of power. There are some limitations on this very broad pardon power. For example, a president cannot pardon anybody for a state offense. His pardoning power only extends to criminal offenses that are federal, and it also does not allow the president to pardon somebody for a civil offense. So again, it's limited only to federal criminal offenses. The only explicit constitutional limitation in the president's pardon power is that a president cannot pardon himself or herself in order to avoid impeachment. Even if that did occur, it would not preclude the House from bringing charges against a president for crimes and misdemeanors that would form a bill of impeachment, nor would it prevent a Senate ultimately trying the president. How specific does a pardon have to be? Pardons typically are given after a person has been convicted of a crime, and then they specifically reference the crime. So, for example, President Trump had pardoned Scooter Libby, Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, and Roger Stone in what is a more typical pardon. In each of those cases, after asserting that a full and unconditional pardon has been given, the pardon then goes on to specify the statutes that each of those individuals were charged with violating, and it describes in detail the punishments they were given. In the case of Michael Flynn, the president's former national security advisor, that was quite unusual because it not only pardoned Flynn for a crime for which he had pled guilty, but it also included some very broad language which pardoned him for any and all possible offenses within the jurisdiction of the special counsel's investigating authority or relating in any manner to the special counsel's investigation of Russia's attempted interference in the 2016 presidential election and linked to the Trump campaign. One of the big surprises was the pardoning of Trump's former strategist, Steve Bannon. And apparently it was whether or not Trump was going to give that pardon that kept them from announcing the list. Why do you think that was such a controversy for Trump? 
it's difficult to say what was going on in the president's mind with regard to Steve Bannon. He's had an on-again, off-again relationship with Mr. Bannon over the years, where at one point he was Mr. Trump's chief strategist and architect of his 2016 presidential campaign. At another point, he was on the outs with the White House, and it may be that the president was trying to decide ultimately whether he thought that a pardon was appropriate here. In this case, Mr. Bannon had been charged in August of last year with defrauding contributors to a privately funded effort to build Mr. Trump's wall along the Mexican border. The pardon of Mr. Bannon in this case was notable because among all the pardons that were issued here, and I think there's about 143 that were issued today, this was the only one in which an individual who had not yet been convicted of an offense was given a pardon. In this case, Mr. Bannon had been charged and he was set to stand trial, but he had not yet been convicted of any crime. And the overwhelming majority of pardons and commutations that have been granted by presidents have been for those individuals who have already been convicted and sentenced of criminal activity. There was also a pardon of a Republican mega donor. It seems as if most of the pardons he issued were for someone related to him in some way, connected to him in some way, not out of the blue. There have been controversial pardons issued by presidents in the past. For example, President Clinton's pardon Patty Hearst, the Hearst newspaper heiress had been involved with a radical weather underground. Clinton also pardoned his half-brother, Roger Clinton, who had been convicted in 1985 of cocaine trafficking. Another example of a pardon that was considered controversial was when President Obama in 2017 commuted the 35-year prison sentence of WikiLeaks source Chelsea Manning, who was arrested in 2010 for releasing information regarding the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to the WikiLeaks website. Perhaps President Clinton's most controversial pardon was that of Mark Rich, who was a billionaire fugitive after his ex-wife, Denise Rich, had given generously to Democratic sources, including more than $100,000 to support Hillary Clinton's New York Senate run and 450000 to President Clinton's presidential library. But in this case, President Trump's pardons have been more closely aligned with people that he knew either directly or indirectly than most of the other controversial pardons by prior presidents. For example, one of President Trump's pardons was of Elliot Brody, a California businessman who was a leading fundraiser for Mr. Trump's 2016 campaign and inauguration. Mr. Brody had admitted that he accepted $9 million in money from a Malaysian financier and that some of that money was paid to an associate to push the Trump administration for the extradition of a Chinese dissident and to drop a case related to an embezzlement scheme from a Malaysian sovereign wealth fund that the United States had accused the Malaysian financier of engineering. Do a lot of the pardons seem to involve politicians caught in corruption? There is not necessarily any particular theme that has run through the pardons and commutations of sentences that presidents have issued on their way out of office. In this case, we do see a trend for President Trump issuing pardons and commutations of sentences related to a great number of white-collar crimes. For example, there were several former political figures among those granted clemency by Mr. Trump. Kwame Kilpatrick, the former mayor of Detroit, had his sentence commuted. He was sentenced to 28 years in prison after being convicted of two dozen counts, including racketeering and extortion. 
President Trump also pardoned Robert Hayes, a former chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party. He'd been accused in 2019 of bribery and conspiracy. The president also pardoned Rick Renzi, a former representative of Arizona. He'd been sentenced in 2013 to 36 months in prison associated with a bribery scheme involving an Arizona land swap deal. And the president also pardoned Randall Duke Cunningham in a case that got a lot of publicity involving a former representative of California. In 2006, he was sentenced to eight years and four months in prison for taking $2.4 million in bribes from military contractors in return for smoothing the way for government contracts. So I do think that these pardons are unusual in that they involve so many white collar crimes, and it does involve a large number of people who were involved in politics, either by holding elective office or in some way being involved in political campaigns and involved in fundraising. I think a case that really illustrates the process of getting the attention of President Trump is the commutation for Sholem Weiss, who is believed to be serving the largest white-collar sentence in U.S. history, 835 years for money laundering and other charges. His nephew, Hershey Martin, had a campaign to secure the presidential commutation for his uncle. He addressed a long string of impassioned tweets to the president. He contacted dozens of legislators, urging them to write letters to the White House. He promoted a website featuring endorsements from people like Alan Dershowitz. It was literally a campaign, but it worked. That's an interesting point, June, because President Trump has not followed the normal pardon process. The Department of Justice has an office that evaluates all of these pardon applications. It's a system that's designed to impose some fairness on a process that is otherwise potentially arbitrary. To give you an example, there are about 14,000 pardon applications currently pending with the Department of Justice. In this case, President Trump, more than any other past president, has largely circumvented that process, which he has the right to do, and take it upon himself to review these pardon applications and then discuss it with his assistants and the White House Counsel's Office in making the ultimate decision. But he has not availed himself of the Department of Justice's office that typically evaluates these pardons. So it's difficult to determine exactly why certain people were granted pardons or commutations and others were not. One example that you mentioned, Shalom Weiss, who was serving the longest white collar sentence in U.S. history, 835 years for money laundering and other charges stemming from the failure of National Heritage Life Insurance Company. That would seem to be an unusual case for a commutation. This is an individual who fled while on bail, who tried to evade prosecution, but was somebody who was ultimately granted a commutation of sentence by President Trump. We don't know exactly why, but what we do know is that his nephew had engaged in a massive campaign to try to obtain a commutation for his uncle. Why ultimately he was chosen for this commutation of sentence, we really don't know, but we do know that the president did consider many commutations and pardons on his last days in office, as most presidents do. Some were granted pardons and commutations, many others were not. To show the hectic nature of it and the unstructured nature of it, after all the pardons were announced, and about an hour before Joe Biden was sworn in as president, 
Trump pardoned Albert Pirro Jr., a former business partner of his and the ex-husband of Fox News host Janine Pirro. It was a real last-minute pardon. Well, again, the president has the absolute right to make these decisions in any way he believes is appropriate. It seems in this case, he did not follow the system that many other presidents have used in order to decide who was worthy of a pardon. Um, Generally, there are factors that the Department of Justice has created, again, in order to provide some kind of uniformity and, and in order to avoid an appearance of arbitrarily handing out these very important decisions about whether to pardon or commute somebody's sentence. In this case, we can only speculate as to how and why President Trump decided to pardon these individuals on his last day in office. It's interesting to point out that although many of these pardons and commutations are controversial, other presidents have also issued uh, controversial pardons and commutations as they left office. And comparatively speaking, President Trump has actually handed out fewer pardons and commutations than his predecessors. For example, only George H.W. Bush, another one-term president, granted fewer pardons and commutations for his time in office. Uh, President Jimmy Carter granted uh, many more, even John Kennedy and Gerald Ford, who did not serve full terms, granted far more petitions than President Trump. Now, what's also notable is what names were not on the list. He did not pardon himself or his children, and that had been expected almost. It had been reported that he was thinking about pardoning himself or his children. A pardon of his children for crimes that have not been charged yet, would that have been an admission of guilt if you accept that kind of a pardon? Um, That's a great question. A preemptive pardon for somebody who's not being charged with a crime, it would be highly controversial, and it's highly questionable as to whether or not that pardon would ultimately stand up. There are those who were advising the president. It seems that such a pardon would amount to an unnecessary admission of guilt, given that none of the people that he was considering himself or his immediate family members had been charged with any crime or were known to be under federal investigation. Many lawyers also believe that it is not appropriate to pardon people without naming the potential crimes for which they are being pardoned. And therefore, these preemptive pardons, granting people mercy for a crime that they had not committed, would set a very bad precedent. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. President Trump is asking a federal appeals court to rule that he qualifies under a law, the Westfall Act of 1988, that would let him dodge a defamation suit by E. Jean Carroll, the New York Advice columnist. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Remind us what the suit is about and what stage it's at right now, Eric. So this is the defamation lawsuit that E. Jean Carroll, the New York Advice columnist, filed against President Trump in 2019 um, after she went public with claims that he raped her two decades ago um, in a department store dressing room in Manhattan. And uh, then he, he called her a liar, said she was politically motivated, that sort of thing. And so she sued him for defamation, essentially over his denial of her allegations. Now, the case was in New York State courts. Uh, more recently, the Justice Department had the case moved to federal court and tried to have the federal government substituted for Trump as the defendant um, in the case, which a federal law does permit federal employees to um, a sort of 
dodge lawsuits against them over acts that relate to their job. So the government did try to substitute itself for Trump in the case. A federal judge denied that, and now that is on appeal. I was surprised to learn some of the lawsuits that have been dismissed because of the Westfall Act. Tell us about some of the cases. Well, yeah, that's the thing is Trump uh, is not making this argument out of thin air. There is this Westfall Act um, of 1988 that, you know, as I said, is supposed to protect federal employees uh, from being sued for actions related to their jobs. And in some cases, those have been defamation suits. Uh, including members of Congress have been sued for defamation, um, for things that they have said. Uh, and then in several cases, including in cases against, you know, like Senator Elizabeth Warren and things like this, they, they successfully did have the government substituted as themselves um, in these cases, leading to their dismissal because you can't sue the government for defamation. Um, but in those cases, uh, the statements that were made, the allegedly defamatory statements, were much more closely tied to policy issues or matters that were sort of in the um, being debated at the time, um, whether related to terrorism or something like that. Uh, so the ju- judges held that they were related to their duties as federal government employees. But in this case, uh, the c- words that Trump used about Eugene Carroll um, denying this uh, sexual assault allegation and saying things like, she's not my type, never met her, don't know her, she's politically motivated. Her lawyer argues that those are not related to his presidential duties in any way, uh, whereas Trump argues that the denial um, of uh, an allegation is part of his presidential duty. So is the argument that he's making before the federal appeals court the same basic argument that he made before Judge Kaplan? Uh, yes, that's correct. They're, they're just hoping for a different outcome, of course, with the federal appeals court here. Uh, they're arguing that uh, for the president to be able to do his job and protect his um, his reputation in office, that sort of thing, that he needs to be able to uh, deny allegations that are made against him. Um, so uh, Eugene Carroll argues, no, he uh, went too far. If he wants to call her a liar, then he's going to have to prove that her underlying uh, claims are false. And she wants to uh, go to trial and prove that they're true. So while it is a defamation case, uh, Eugene Carroll is hoping that it will come down to a trial over whether or not the alleged attack actually happened. Is he being represented by his own attorneys and the Justice Department attorneys or just the Justice Department attorneys? Well, he still has his lawyer uh, in the case, Mark Katowicz, lawyer that he has in in a lot of his litigations. Um, He also has the Justice Department arguing, um, you know, appealing that denial to let the government substitute him. So right now, the Justice Department is a party in the case. Trump is a party in the case. And they're both on the same side arguing uh, to let the government substitute itself for Trump so that the case can be dismissed. So he he really does have representation by both the government still and his own personal lawyer, Mark Kessler. When he's no longer president, does Biden's Justice Department have to take over. Yes, they will inherit this case along with, uh, you know, of course, many others. And, uh, you know, one would maybe suspect that, oh, well, if if the Justice Department gets, if Biden's Justice Department gets this, they'll just drop it and say, we no longer want to make this argument. But that's really not a foregone conclusion. This um, question that the federal or that the appeals court is going to have to answer is twofold. Does the Westfall Act apply to a president? 
And if it does, uh, does were Trump's allegedly defamatory comments part of his official duties under the Westfall Act? So it, it may be it's, uh, that the government may want, to, even the Biden administration may want to argue that the Westfall Act does apply to a president, as it has in past cases. It's never been challenged this way before. So the Justice Department may uh, sort of agree with half the case. They may want Trump to be protected by the Westfall Act, but they may then argue, no, those particular comments were not part of his official duties. So it's unclear exactly what the administration will do. This relates to allegations of something he did way before he was president. In other cases, is the connection more immediate? That's correct. And in fact, that's why Judge Kaplan, the district judge, uh, ruled against the government on this question. That's one of the reasons. He said that the underlying um, sexual assault uh, at the center of of this defamation case related to old events um, and therefore were not related, uh, you know, to his presidential duties. So that's going to be another factor I'm sure the appeals court is going to consider. Uh, But like I said before, Trump is arguing that denying those old allegations is still part of his current presidential duties. Just to clarify, if the court decides that this falls under the Westfall Act, this case will be dead in the water. That's correct. If they they decide that the president is protected by the Westfall Act and that his comments about E. Jean Carroll uh, were part of his presidential duties, then the government would be substituted as defendants and the case would then be essentially dismissed. Um, so there would be, there, there wouldn't really be any way around that. Roberta Kaplan is representing E. Jean Carroll here, and she's also involved in some other lawsuits against Trump. Yes, she is. She is going to have a, a very busy 2021 uh, she is also representing Mary Trump, the president's niece, of course, who wrote uh, a damning book about Donald Trump um, and was embroiled in litigation over that book, which she won. Um, and then she went on to sue uh, the president um, and her aunt and uncle for fraud, um, alleging a massive fraud related to the wills of uh, their parents, uh, her grandparents. So. Uh, that case is, is still in its early stages. Roberta Kaplan is representing Mary Trump there. And she's also representing um, some old investors uh, in a company called ACN that did a multi-level marketing promotion on uh, Trump's reality TV shows that they claim he ripped them off by falsely telling, uh, praising this company without revealing that he was being paid to do so. And is the civil lawsuit against Trump by Summer Zervo still pending? It, it is. Um, that is um, on appeal in New York State Court. Uh, there should be a hearing at uh, some point uh, later this year. It hasn't been scheduled yet. It's been sort of um, stalled for a while now um, after Summer Zervos won the most recent argument in that case. So it was the dismissal, motion to dismiss, that Trump lost. And that's now on appeal. Which case is closest to having Trump having to do a deposition, having to swear under oath and answer questions? Well, that's a very good question. I, I really wouldn't know. I mean, uh, E. Jean Carroll's case and Summer Zervis, they both want to depose Trump. Um, theoretically, that could happen in either one of those cases um, this year. 
And E. Jean Carroll is also looking for a DNA test? Yeah, she wants to get a DNA sample from the president. Um, she has had the dress that she wore and the shoes that she was wearing at the time of the alleged attack. She saved them and hasn't touched them since then. Um, she had them uh, tested uh, to pull various uh, DNA samples off of them. Um, there was DNA from one unidentified male, um, and they want to test uh, Trump's DNA to see if it's his. I want to talk a little bit about the New York prosecutors who are investigating Trump's company for possible tax, bank, and insurance fraud and why they've broadened their investigation to include a property in Westchester County called Seven Springs. Yes, Seven Springs uh, is a development north of New York City that uh, the Trump organization tried to develop um, years ago, around I think around 2012. Um, It didn't work out, so they ended up um, essentially donating part of it, and uh, they called it a conservation easement. And he got quite a large uh, tax uh, benefit for that based on a very specific large appraisal of this property, which was much more than what they had paid for it. And uh, the New York Attorney General has been investigating that. Um, it's, it's It's part of a larger investigation into Trump's uh, valuations and uh, whether or not any bank fraud or insurance fraud might be involved in how they valued various assets. Uh, These are things that Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, sort of spilled the beans on uh, during his live congressional testimony. That's what triggered the New York Attorney General's investigation, which technically we only know about because she had to sue to force Trump organization and various other people to, uh, to comply with the subpoenas that she'd sent out. That civil investigation is still ongoing. And was that the investigation where Eric Trump was forced to testify? That's correct. The, one of the subpoenas was for Eric Trump's uh, deposition. Um, he ultimately lost on his effort to delay it until after the presidential election, and he has since been deposed. No idea, of course, what was said. That's all a secret information, but uh, eventually we, we may find out if a lawsuit is ever filed if any alleged wrongdoing is actually spelled out in court. Uh, But it's too early to know for sure if that'll happen. If it's the AG suing, does that mean it's only civil or can it also be criminal? Well, right now it's just a civil investigation. Uh, My understanding is that if they find criminal uh, activity, uh, that they would have to refer that out and sort of get um, an approval to do a, a criminal case. So it's not something that they can that the AG's office can automatically do on its own. And that's separate from the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation. That's correct. They're they're obviously looking out at the the same underlying um, questions here about Seven Springs. But as we saw reports um, on Friday, uh, they at the DA's office are also investigating. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.